topic of today, I think it was stated as lessons learned as I navigated my life after exiting from Darden. So principle number one, if you got a sneak preview of my resume, and actually thank you for this opportunity because I had to actually sit back and reflect and say, what all have I really done? <laughs> and I think one thing we don't do is do that often enough because you'll be surprised how often the definition of what I have really done changes. Your appreciation of what you really care about changes. And so it's a good reflection time, always. So I did some of that to say, to think and say, all of those things that I feel really contributed to where I am today. And hopefully you'll find them of some help. First of all, I can look back and say, if I had sat down with a pencil and paper and tried to create a plan for myself, there is no chance in hell it would have reflected what I really have done. Not a single moment would I have thought about all of the things that I did and none of the choices I would have even gone for or thought about because we always think inside a framework that we know at the point in time when we are thinking. Circumstances, situations, throw things at us which are outside of that framework. And then you have a choice to make. Am I going to experience this or am I not going to? Then your inherent biases and risk averseness pops its head. And that's when is the moment of truth. So everything you're doing today is preparing you for those moments. And trust me, folks, those are going to come every day of your life more often than you ever think. So that's why this experience is valuable because you get to sit and peep through a window and see all the choices many other people made. And I think um, this is where every time you see a new situation, think about what you would do if you were in it. Um, most of my time here, all I really cared about was if I became a global person, I'd be really happy. I had no idea how I would define it. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be important. And I didn't create the plan that I wish I had because even if I had been wrong, I would have understood who I am. Even if I had been wrong, I would have known my own strengths better. Even if I was wrong, I would have known what to steer away from and it would have prepared me better. Um, but one thing this place prepared me for was to be open to plunge in because you never get the time to think here. You're just said, next thing, go here. Next thing, this case, you plunge. 
you begin to believe yourself because even if I didn't know something, I will be able to do it. If not, I will rely on my network because they will help me do it. That's the study group. These are real life situations, folks, because this is exactly what is preparing you for taking the plunge. So if I wind back and say, as I stood here, or as I was here at the end of my second year, all I cared about was that I could get a job that would pay off my debt. That's the longest term lens I had at the time. Did it have anything to do with what I could do well? No. Did it, did it have anything to do with what I really, really want to do? No. But I did exercise the choice based on one simple fact. How do I pay down my debt? And I'm sure a lot of you will face that choice. And for me, it was, call it in finance terms, currency arbitrage. I'm originally from India. I borrowed money. I wasn't earning in dollars when I arrived here. I saved enough to pay for first year. I borrowed money for the second year. And I had a dollar debt, all of 32,500. The specter of having to go back and earn in rupees, for those of you who like currency exchange, is a lot of years. So the first and foremost thought that came to mind was survival, that I need to pay this down because I don't want to be beholden to somebody. And whatever job would allow me to do that fast will be the job I would take. This is my retroactive definition of what I did. But that's how I acted. And I did what I had never in the wildest of imagination thought about. I was a CPA. I worked with the big, so I was, I'm pedigreed. I've got Pricewaterhouse in my blood. I've got Ernst & Young in my blood. That's what I had done before I came here. And the reason I came here was I wanted to take the CPA label off me and become the MBA. And guess what? The first job I took was international audit <laughs> with Coca-Cola Company. So think about the predictable. I would have never planned for that in any game plan. But guess what? What I learned in a spreadsheet was net cash flow. That was the best proposition. That will pay down and unshackle me. What's a little more audit for two years? And that's exactly the choice I made. I can tell you that it was a lot of distress. I felt initially like a failure. Wow, this is what you're running away from and this is what you're in. And then came the second lesson. It isn't what you think it is, it is what you experience and what you make of it. What I learned in those two years of doing a job which was defined in a certain way was completely different because I had now the new lenses. I was a Darden person. I didn't do audit the way it was done before. 
I didn't treat it even as a CPA exercise. I was out there on a free budget to learn about the business of my company. Again, this is how I define it today. I was just simply exploring because whoever pays for you to travel to every corner of the world, experience every part of that business, and look at their performance and relate it to what they should or should not have done. That's decision making. If I were to define and ask you to be an auditor tomorrow, you turn your nose and say, oh my god, there is no other vantage point to be able to dissect at that early stage of a career something that makes money or that doesn't, something that's ethical or is not ethical, something that is a decision between destroy lives or creating employment. It's how you look at it. But that's what I learned here. My interpretation of what I came in with previously was different. When I went out, it was very different. So I got a free introduction into the culture, the business of the Coca-Cola company across the globe. I was able to pretty much touch every continent. For somebody born and brought up in Delhi, who barely could come to this school, within a span of two years, I had traversed more globe than I ever imagined would make me global. So if I had turned my nose away and said, I'm a failure, I would have missed a lifetime's opportunity. And I thought my world was ending, but it was only beginning. And I think that's the perspective when I think back put me in on a roller coaster ride that lasted 23 years. I'm in the 23rd. So I'm dating myself, but I took off my hair so I can look younger. <laughs> so, but that's, and then I realized that I can actually make something completely different than how I get it. So the label doesn't matter. And then the next thing I thought, what is of interest to me? The only thing I knew was when we were studying here or people I met or talked about, M&A. Wow. Without having an earthly idea about what it entails and how it can be executed, I said, okay, why not pursue something that I'm completely ill-prepared for? Only because it's just glamorous. It's just something I really wanted to experience because I'd heard it's great. And so I, that was one thing I pursued with real intent. I hadn't done anything forceful like that before. And I knew the odds were stacked against me being considered. But at the time, I realized now, this is again retrospective, so um, I realized that I really haunted people who were in a position to actually allow me to join that team. If I look back at how I engaged with them and what I did with around them, I 
shudder to imagine what they would have felt because I have since had many occasions when I have tried to push people away. But somebody believed. And the somebody that believed, only believed, who later told me, only believed because the pursuit was relentless. He could not understand how you could be pushing your way into something you're not prepared for. But he, was, he saw what he liked. I would any day hire somebody with the right attitude and really heavy intent. I really don't care what they know, because that's half the battle. And I did somehow convince this person and was able to make that transition. And that was yet another plunge where I didn't know how to navigate. But this person was an accomplished manager enough to push me into the most difficult spot in a negotiation in the matter of a month and a half against very savvy entrepreneurs and allowed me to sink. I have never felt so little in my life, but I have never since been ill-prepared, never since been more forceful, and never since have I um, paid a, not paid attention to the capability of the other side. Um, and I think that's the kind of leader you want to work for people who will allow you to fail. Doesn't happen often in our ongoing roller coaster of performance assessment. That's not something that is widely practiced. So if you have the fortune of working for a leader who can allow you to fail, you're going to be a better person. Um, of course, he was willing to rescue me at the right time. And I think that's another part of, so be prepared for whatever it is that you want to do or to face anything that you may not even know. Plunge and pursue relentlessly and be around people who can allow you to fail. I did that across many parts of the world. Again, true, and M&A is, is, is another place where you get real understanding of human nature. Because somebody's got something to buy or sell, and you have the desire to be on the other side of that trade. But it takes way more than that to convince each other, and if as a seller, to get somebody to put money on the table and as a buyer to ever get convinced that you're not paying too much. You can't do that with spreadsheets. You can define the corridor, but your mind and heart agrees when you understand the other side as a human being. And in that interaction happens real M&A because value is created with what is done after 
not during. And I think it's a metaphor because you will be integrating, you will be disintegrating. You will be responsible for businesses that you will nurture that you will have to give away. And you'll be responsible for sniffing out businesses that you need to acquire. None of that will happen unless you make the human connection. Spreadsheets only tell you how much it's worth. So another thing to remember. Besides uh, M&A, then I realized that in that process, I learned that value was being created after, which means you got to be able to integrate. Well, how do you integrate if you don't know what you're integrating and into what? Have you operated anything ever? No. So I said, I need to become an operator. And that doesn't mean, and I thought I am already qualified to run a business. And there again, and I look back, I went on my relentless pursuit and I actually convinced in the same way that I did the first time somebody to say, oh, let's, this person run a business. What have you done before that? None, nothing, nada. <laughs> so why should I be qualified? Because he's asking. And guess what? He's asking to go where no one else wants to go. And the great markets that I was entrusted, hold your breath, Nepal, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. But folks, it does not matter. Buying and selling happens everywhere. You give something, somebody has to pay for it, and people engage with you in that exercise. You gotta lead them, you gotta do everything possible to put the results on paper. So I took it for what that was, as opposed to, that's the back of beyond of the world, what the hell am I doing? I didn't do an MBA to go to Nepal, Sri Lanka, and Bangladesh. And so I raised my hand and said, yes, I will do that. Why? Because I wanted to make a turn towards understanding how you run things. Strategy is overrated. Execution makes money. And so I did take the plunge, and I was this time completely ill-prepared. And I didn't realize that you touch more lives as a leader and more impact on people's existence than you ever believe. I also realized that if you ask for too long, you may get it. A structural change happened, and what I started with became three times the size. So now overnight, I was from three markets, I had six. From no plants to I had several plants, and I had country managers and over 4,000 people working in my part of the business. That could well have been my world. I was completely ill-prepared. So this is where I realized that when you do all of your best work, you won't necessarily be rewarded. I also realized when I did my average work, I got rewarded handsomely. <laughs> so the reward when measured in money is very different 
the satisfaction and happiness for me was the exact opposite. When I did the best of my work and I thought I did what I really wanted to, I was happy. The time when I really didn't do what I thought I should have, I got rewarded handsomely. I didn't feel good. I had more money. Those are the situations you're going to face. And nobody else can make you feel any differently. It's you, yourself. And I think that's where I made the hardest decisions. I learned more about business than I would have bargained for. That was accelerated MBA, Darden, six months in a matter of two days. So it compressed everything. Every problem landed in my shoulder. There were terrorist attacks, bombs in the plants. There were people. I had to shed, remove people. I had to shed an operation by half. I had folks pleading to keep their jobs as their only livelihood was about to go. Those are the kinds of decisions you're going to face. Nothing will prepare you for it. But I think it helps you find your purpose along the way. Because all these experiences and situations are chiseling you to really determine your own purpose. And this is not a spiritual quest. This is just to navigate through your life and feel good about it. And I think, so one common theme, go for the experience you never thought you would go for. It'll test you. At least you'll know that what you really, really hate. <laughs> but chances are you will find out what you really, really like. M&A, um, so operations. And then I thought that this was time that I had to make a change in my career for my family. I was riding on a wave. I had a job that I thought I should have never gotten. I had gotten over the hump, gotten beaten down. Now I had notched up operational experience. Life was good, but I realized that it had come at an expense. <coughs> My dear wife is a Darden alumni. She was wonderful enough to be partner in this exercise. But we had a little son by then and who needed to now go to a better place in terms of education and so on. So, I did the unheard of. I said, I will now want to move back. And that was a choice. For, in many ways, at the time, I had many tribulations. Is it a step back? Am I, oh, I just got here. Now I got to, how, all those questions didn't matter, eventually. This is, again, the ret retrospective definition. But it was a tough choice. So then I reverted back to the world of M&A. I knew it, I could sit in Atlanta. So I was back. This time around, much more strategic across a much larger territory, engineering, much larger mergers. It was China, it was Europe, it was Asia. So it was 
familiar territory, but a hiatus to now do something that will help with what is important as well, and in fact more important than you think. And then came a point where another opportunity stared. A new group created the part of the world I had never worked for, and by this time, you have become the kind of person who people look for when there is adversity, unusual opportunity, creating something new. So I was asked to go in, and that's when we moved. So we lived in Singapore, we lived in Istanbul. Those experiences, had I not even worked, would have, I would pay a million dollars for today, just because you got to interact and navigate a global business across a territory you have absolutely no earthly idea about, and culture that you've never experienced, motivations that may or may not be different. Struggling through that, finding that out, creating connections, that's... So it is not the destination, folks, it's the journey. And I think it helped me understand and appreciate that that's really what it is, again, as I reflect back. Um, I then finally got to work for the Af with the business in Africa. The whole African continent somehow landed into my lap. But I do believe things don't just land in your lap. I think some wise person has said, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And unbeknownst to myself, I feel like I had prepared myself. I keep saying it's all retrospective only because I don't want you to walk away thinking this guy figured it out then. No. I navigated through what fell into my lap. But there were reasons that it fell, and I even saw it. Not many times these things fall into, you don't see them. And that's exactly what transpired. So I was able to experience yet another part of the world, many wonderful people, and navigate through doing business across a whole different geography. So the one lesson that comes out of that, as I think about it, in the end, we're very different and diversity is important, but motivations are pretty universal. Not speaking the language did not matter. Empathy and understanding the other side's view mattered. So it wasn't what you knew, it's what you understood the others know that helps you do business or to interact, or to be productive. And it's an ever-learning journey. Regardless of how much you know, there is way much to know, may way much more to know. And not only, well, I thought I was gonna be a global citizen. If I went to the first time when I thought sitting here in Darden, New York, London, Tokyo, and I'll be a global citizen. I couldn't have been more wrong. The more you see, the more there is to see. If that's what motivates you, definitely motivates me, even today. I've traveled thousands and hundreds of miles, but 
and you would think that the first thing I want to do on a long vacation or a weekend, sit back and go nowhere, I'm a misfit for those environments. I am a nomad by definition. But I figured that out now as I look back because I was happiest in those moments. So there's, there's permanence in being nomadic. And I think global experience is not sitting in one office. Global experience is being there, being part of it, interacting in a different environment, and then learning and reapplying. Uh, from that, I s then again, preparation met opportunity, and I got thrown into where I am today, which was the other side of the Coca-Cola company, the industrial side. So if you think about Coca-Cola does business through owning a great brand portfolio and continuing to shine it, so that's great marketing. But then it creates growth through great execution. And execution equals production, sales, and distribution. And that's what bottlers do. And great way of creating a network organization. We did that 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago. But today it's back in vogue when the incubator gets a millennial some money and they subcontract everything to everybody and they have three people and they pay $650 for their ERP system in a month. Everybody's great job, great innovation because it's a network organization. I don't do anything, nothing is on my balance sheet and I'm generating revenue. Well, that happened in 1886. It got written about as a network organization 20, 30 years ago. But that's what the Butler franchise model is, or any franchise business is. You've farmed out the heavy-duty stuff to somebody else. But how does that happen? You have to make them believe, put their capital and their capability to do something against the promise that you believe your brand delivers. So you've got to be top of the game on your portfolio and in your brand. Only then somebody will put their real money on to say, I'll put up infrastructure, I'll get the sales force, and sell your product. And that's not just a contractual agreement. That's, again, something that happens because you create interest because you create fair returns for their participation. And sometimes these equations don't work. That's when Who's going to step in? Not a banker, not an investor. It's the brand owner. So that's how the Botling Investment Group comes in. We stepped in to acquire things that needed reform or start things where nobody else was willing to put their money. So one of our ventures right now is the sprawling metropolis of Myanmar, which just started doing real business after 50 years of complete isolation. So who would put the amount of investment to start from scratch? It's us. And that's part of the portfolio. Equally, we did acquire everything in Germany because a developed market must operate like a utility, highly efficient. It's a 1% or 2% growth market. How do you make money? You want to be super efficient. 
Is an entrepreneur interested at that point in time? No. Is it disruption, interruption? We step in. That's how that portfolio came into being, and I thought, what better way but to be in that part of the business so you can now really revive something from, you know, improve performance, restructure, and create change. So that's how I ended up in the current portfolio. That's where I have been. And it continues to fortify the lessons. Try something you've never done. Plunge deeply. Surround yourself with the right people. Work with, for, around them. Because you will learn and you will succeed. And learning is a lifetime's quest. IQ only takes you so far. EQ adds to it. But together, what I call, and I'm not sure if I've stolen that term from somebody, but it's the LQ. What's your learning agility? And learning agility comes from a great combination of the IQ and the EQ. IQ because you need to discern the difference in value. EQ because you need to understand human value. And LQ because you need to adjust yourself each time with lack of knowledge, definition of question, bringing people along, being resourceful, bringing it all together. We all know the people who we go to when we are in trouble. I know exactly the three people I will go for when I am in deep trouble because they will help define the real question. They will improve my understanding they will seek solutions without instruction. They will find other people who know. They are not afraid to work through, with, or for people. And they are instinctively recognizable because of our human instinct of seven billion years of evolution. Because we know they know, and we know they can do it. Be that person because that's what is going to make a difference. Uh, so LQ to me is the assimilation of all the experiences, quantitatively or qualitatively, that you assimilate in yourself and the quest for learning forever that eventually makes you the professional or the human being you are. I think I've said a lot. <laughs> I need to take pause. <laughs> pause that refreshes. <laughs> so I'll stop there. And hear your thoughts. Any questions? Anything? We're. Uh... We're live streaming, I think, so we need the mic. So uh, Liz and I will be coming around. Hi, uh, thanks for coming in. Jake Levy, uh, second year at Darden, obviously. Um, <laughs> at Darden. Um, so in today's work environment, spending 23, 25, even five years at a company um, 
is somewhat of a rarity. I uh, I was wondering maybe if you could talk about some of the trade-offs that you see of people who um, are spending their whole careers at a company and maybe some of the trade-offs that people make when they're bouncing around uh, from company to company every two to three years. Yeah. Well, I'm, I often face that question, but I think to answer that, if we took an example, me on one side and I will often compare notes with my friends, fellow Darden, or people I've met across from those times who have been at six or seven or eight employers during this time, or branched out, did their own thing, whichever one you look at. And then it didn't matter what that represents. It, what mattered is what was their experience. I just described the experiences. I could not have paid to get those experiences. I could not have found 17 environments to provide me those experiences. Did I luck into them? Yes. But I'm not sure. Whichever way you find the experiences you care about, go for them. I don't believe there is a formula. One or 10 or three companies. So to me, that's what's, what's the experience you're looking for? And which always boils down to the question of, who are you? Number two, what do you stand for? And what do you want to stand for? It doesn't matter that it's one organization or 10. And I think that's really where it goes to. And it takes living and experience to feel that way. So don't get me <laughs> take take me the wrong way, but that's, that's the reality. And I think, um, so my experiences help me make peace with the fact that I'm in the same employer. But I know all of these folks who were in a very narrow band, so I would not have had geographical experience, business experience, or all of that which comes with having made those moves. But I paid a price. Nothing is for free. And I have, you know, but I got used to it. And I thought that was the only way there is. I'm a complete misfit for a single city, um, no chaos kind of an environment. I know that now. I will never take a go work where it is just hold steady and keep going. I'm not saying that's wrong. That's not for me. So you got to figure out what's it for you. But there is no single way. And the other is, a lot of times, I mean, if the job isn't what they gave you the job description for. It is what you make of it. And everybody's a general manager if they feel so. Otherwise, they are a functional expert. That's how you think. I, I think every job is a general management job. So. <laughs> Perspective. Uh, thank you for the presentation. It was very wonderful. Uh, my name is Geraldine Henry, and I'm a Gimba, uh, 2016. Ah. And we were recently in Delhi, um, and we had the opportunity to hear from Coca-Cola there. Ah, who so, was that? I don't remember his name, <laughs> so I don't want to get it. <laughs> 
But it was really, a, um, it was captivating. I was just looking for his name, but I didn't want to take the time to look for it. Um, but uh, one of the things that he talked about as far as challenges that they had, um, you know, in the, in the country was um, actually being able to market Coca-Cola in the same way that we do in the West um, because, the, because of the smaller merchants. And they could not ignore the smaller merchants and, and the way that things are marketed in India, uh, in particular in Delhi where we were, but also in some of the other um, parts of the country. And so I'm, I'm, they were also looking at, as far as Coca-Cola was looking at developing new products so that uh, Coca-Cola could become more um, engaged with the communities there, you know, different types of milk products and, and so forth, which you probably know a lot about. And I was wondering... We just launched one. You did, okay. And so I was wondering if you could speak to how that affects you and your team um, when you go into a country, especially like, you know, Manama or some of these countries that you talked about, uh, which is really fascinating. How does that affect you um, with the people part of it knowing that you know they may not they may actually reject you know, this is not a coke i'm really sorry i didn't know but um <laughs> they may not you know they may not accept the coca-cola product because of their beliefs or because of the the culture you know how does that make you feel knowing that you know you're going to go in and you you have to you may be changing the market or you may be creating something new um and how do, how do you all deal with that i think the simplest answer to that would be um you only succeed when you provide global appeal in a local context. So there are many businesses, the successful global businesses are the ones which are in many occasions seen as local businesses by the consumers in their own jurisdiction. And we always are striving for that balance. So. The entree is definitely a global appeal. Brand Coca-Cola is brand Coca-Cola. There's nothing else like it. You can't replicate, recreate. So that's the appeal. But then the extensions in there, because we are trying to lead in the whole non-alcoholic, ready-to-drink sort of category, well, we want to be able to serve on different occasions whatever else appeals to the local taste. You can build new taste, but you can also satisfy existing. And then in terms of economies, everything that is traditional eventually gets commercialized and packaged as affluent because it's all about moving up the convenience curve. So, you know, India, the most drunk thing is a squeezed lemon in water. But when families begin to work and they have more money that changes to the same thing in a package. So we are, we try to occupy all of that spectrum. And I think so it's, we have many products and brands outside in many parts of the world, which are, you would never think about malt drinks, non-alcoholic or milk drinks or lots of um, yogurt drinks or um, many different kinds of juices, coffee and tea, oolong tea to a green tea to a milk tea. So if your mission is to be the leading non-alcoholic ready-to-drink player, that's 
what you have to do. So that's the, India is the largest milk consuming society in the world. And if you don't play in that, but you can't, so then it gets into what kind of milk and so on and so forth. But, but that's a, so you got a preview of how we're trying to at once become global and local. Hey, um, so I'm, in, I'm intrigued the way you started your presentation about failure, um, mostly because I'm certain that I will fail. Um, <laughs> but I guess it's from a manager's perspective, um, could you elaborate on um, the failure that comes from the wrong person being in the wrong role versus this ill-prepared failure that you're talking about? Um, and then also, as a manager, when, you know, when do you know to step in and when when do you help out the people to you know when they fail but how to get them back up on uh, on their feet uh, that's tough um, but the failure can you know occur many different ways as you just described I think before you make that choice to allow somebody to fail you ought to understand what they are are about because the, the people who you afford that luxury are the folks you know are doing everything to learn and improve and apply. If they don't fall in that category, then it's, a, you know, failure happens all the time, knowingly or unknowingly. Now we're talking about the known potential for failure. One, it's an unpredictable situation. Two, unpredictable predictable methods to be applied in response to that situation and three your confidence in the person who you want to uh, allow to you know engage and I think it's going to be situational how you help them through and I think it is part of learning and sometimes a failure that seem in my case really large in my purview was something you somebody else was allowing me to fail knowing that the consequence won't be that large but they trusted my instincts to realize that how you work against the failure so it's not a and I think a lot of times we only discover the failure after it's happened it's also how you treat it once it's happened. There are numerous occasions when it will happen regardless of the best care taken. That's when, as a manager, you have a different role. Because was all thought process applied? Did it happen out of uncertainty? And so on. This is where you have to help the person rise out and learn and move on. And that's where I think that, that's more the leadership part to help engage and extract them from the misery and there's no simple way but if we can learn from that failure and go for something that we would have otherwise not done that's a constructive failure so it gets complex but I think the only thing you can't do is be so afraid as never to try
And I think that's the cultural aspect of any organization. And a lot of this comes from what culture exists in the organization. So from outwardly, in this you would see outwardly Coca-Cola may be seen as conservative and slow and so on and so forth. There's a lot of turmoil boiling underneath. So some ways we are victims of our own success. But I think that's the, so I, I'm not sure I can give you a simple answer. Um, but I think first and foremost, never to be afraid of it. And secondly, help somebody extricate themselves out of it. Because each such occasion is bulletproofing you from the next from happening. Hi, uh, well, thank you very much for coming. I feel it's very inspiring. Uh, I'm Irene Bill, a second year student. We're, one thing you mentioned is about like uh, empathy and understanding the other party is the key to success. I feel it just makes so much sense. Um, however, it's easier to understand how to use empathy to manage your people, but I feel it's harder to know like how to use that to um, to work with your like partners or like business parties. So how to apply that rather than like thinking about it is good, but how to practice is kind of my question. So I wonder if you can give us an either an example or, or some tips about like how you apply that with some part um, like business parties you might have some like conflict of of interest with. Like what would you your idea? Um no simple questions today. <laughs> well, what I meant by that is, I think all of you have done some kind of negotiating class or another. You know, there's always the nugget that you've got to step in the other person's shoes. To me, that's manifestation of empathy. You cannot be step into other person's shoes unless you fully understand their circumstance and their reactions to what you're saying. In order to do that, you have to really know them, really understand why they are behaving in a certain way. So, and that applies to uh, partners or competitors. Now, competitors in so much as that's why competitive intelligence, we're trying to figure out in many different ways why they act in a certain way in a certain situation. So I think that's something you learn from experiencing again, over and over again. Uh, but there are seeming deadlocks which have nothing to do with the economics but they have a lot to do with motivations coming from something as simple as um, this was the plant that was built by my grandfather as part of this merger we won't shut that down you can't address that no matter how much money is on the table the, the transaction is not going to be completed. So there are other non-economic motivations, and I think that's where you are able to really build a bridge and go across. The other is how you are perceived in that engagement. Perceived in that engagement. Trans honest and transparent are always... Um, looking for a win-lose situation, 
solution. And the only way you can prove the honesty and transparency is by giving them the feel that you know how they feel. So, you know, when all else fails, transparency helps. And so we many a times go into negotiations trying to keep information, assuming that that will have an adverse impact to the negotiation. But they're not expecting you to act in any other way than your own self-interest. But you're stating so with the right facts and demonstrating reasonableness can make something happen which otherwise would not happen. So again, it's a combination of things. But I think it is important to understand that the person negotiating is a person. Hi, my name is Victor Vasquez. I'm a second year. Uh, so here you were telling us how you created your, your own path and your own career. But I wanted to know, like, in this process as well, you, I'm, I'm sure, like, not everything was, was uh, happiness, but you had, like, some failures. So I wanted to, to know how did you overcome those failures? I imagine as well that while you are creating your own path, you need to know uh, yourself who you are. Um, or a lot of yourself, so I want to know like which are the processes that you follow for understanding yourself, and uh, somehow like which are these controls that probably you put in practice that to know that you are going in the in the correct direction. <laughs> you make it sound like I was very deliberate in everything that I did. <laughs> I was not. Uh, so. As I said, that's why I was re-emphasizing in retrospect, it feels like that was my story. But I was stumbling through a lot. What I did have, which I can see, was I had determination to navigate what I didn't know. And I knew that I would, and I was not afraid to come into a work situation being seen as the one knowing the least. That didn't stop me from interacting, participating, and so on. So, and I realized when, when I failed, I felt bad. Uh, I didn't want, I don't want anybody to walk away thinking that failure was enjoyable. It was not. But it was something that I can say shaped me because I just didn't want to accept it. So, it's not a very high spiritual standard, but the fact was, I didn't want to fail again. So if you care, you act. That's the only real check I can think of. And that goes back to who are you and what do you stand for? I hate failing. So I, I don't want to give you this seven-step process by which I did something. Well, that's the reality. And I think it is important to state that claim early. I, as I speak today, I'm saying, had I thought about this a little differently then, I would have acted very differently, maybe. I would have cared less about things I sh really cared about and vice versa. So I wish I was singing it, I mean, I was thinking that way at the time. Um, how do you correct yourself? I think uh, we underestimate the feedback loop that you may or may not have with your partner, 
your friend, your relative, or your family. You'll be amazed what a shock absorption mechanism they are. They help you through failure. Not your manager, not the CEO, not the money. So that's what helped me. So before you go far off and forget them, you know, create that inner circle, which allows you to make peace with yourself. And I think that's what helps you navigate. Because in their eyes, you are a hero, no matter what you did. And they're always there to say, you are the person they care about. You know, it was a business situation or something. So they will help you work through it. I think that's, that's the only way. And did I, because I know where I went when I was in those so your, your partner, your family, and your inner circle. They could be friends, mentors, whoever. And if you don't have one, folks, create one. So unfortunately, that's uh, all the time we have. But uh, let's give Sunil Gatnagar a round of applause. Oh. Thank you.